0: You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. If you're listening on iTunes or Google Play, please go to our show page and leave a review. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. On today's episode, we'll be discussing how to build your brand philosophy and grow a micro brand. Today's guest on Self-Made Strategies is Chris Vale, founder of NTH Watches and founder of Lou & Yui. Today's episode is sponsored by Lopes Law, LLC. Call or contact Lopes Law LLC, where we flat fee the majority of your legal fees. Please visit www.lopeslawllc.com or email us at infolopeslawllc.com. At All right, Chris. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Really looking forward to this episode where we'll talk about marketing, operations, how you've developed your self-proclaimed micro brand. I think it's a little bit bigger than that at this point, maybe, but tell us a little bit about how you got started with NTH and Lou and Yui.
1: The shortest version is um, I had been looking for an e-commerce business to get into something I could learn from home. I wasn't really thrilled with the way my career was going at that point when I lost my job, I was in software sales at the time. And um, it happened to sort of be a perfect storm situation. I had been working on a business plan for a completely unrelated business Mm -hmm. that was just starting to fall through and and sort of break break down when I did lose my job. And um, it's pretty down in the dumps. I I looked at myself and figured I was pretty much unemployable at that point. Uh, My resume was pretty choppy. Uh, It was, you know, the end of a seven year stretch. It was the following the Lehman Brothers, Great Recession time period. Right, right, right. so uh, I was sitting there, you know, kind of stewing in front of the computer, looking at job listings, when uh, my watch stopped, and it was not. Watches are not exactly like the product I had been looking at uh, before my business plan kind of fell apart, but they were similar in many ways. So it was like a, you know, very much like the TV shows where the light bulb goes on over somebody's head, and I thought, okay, well. What are these things? What's a good watch cost? What are Mm -hmm. the costs to make? Mm -hmm. Where are they made? Who's making them? What are the markups? What are the margins? Uh, Back in the day, I I started, uh, while I was still in college, I I learned retail from an uncle that hired me to work for him. So i and I, I came from finance, so I was always good at like reverse engineering businesses. So a little bit of online research and I got sucked into it. You know, I spent hours and hours, days on end researching watches. And within a very short time, I knew that this was the business I wanted to start. That's great. What was your retail experience with your uncle? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I grew up here in Philadelphia, but I've got, uh, my mother's side of the family from New York. I had an uncle Mm -hmm. with a clothing store in uh, New York city and, um, you know, he's multiple generations in that business. His father's a wholesale rep and, you know, as the Jews up in uh, New York call it, the (laughs) schmata business. Um, yeah. So, uh, so he, um, it, it was kind of just sort of happened. Like he, he called up my mother one day and said, Hey, if Chris isn't doing anything between college semesters, why doesn't he come up here? I'll put him up in my house. He can work with me at my store and I'll, I'll show him the ropes. And he did. That's exactly what happened. It was a wonderful experience. It was my first time having such a close relationship with the owner of a small business who didn't just put me to work and pay me by the hour. He actually, he took me on his buying trips. He showed me, you know, he kind of opened the books a little bit on his business, not literally the books, but he opened the playbook. I saw him um, wow. and we talked a lot about, you know, how does he decide what to sell in his store, who his customers are? He knew, you know, sort of what their profile looked like very well. How do you deal with problem employees? How do you deal with, you know, a customer dispute? Um, and so it ended up being about a two year time period where every break and my, you know, my college schedule, I'd go up to New York. Wow. Cra- you know, put put me up in the spare bedroom, drive to work with him every day. And it was a thrill. I, um, in particular, I I think that was what really sparked the drive for me to eventually own my own business. Um, I distinctly remember every Tuesday we would go into Manhattan on a buying trip and we would go in, you know, in and out all day long to Mm -hmm. these different places, Mm -hmm. which were basically warehouses, um, just stacked floor to ceiling with different, you know, articles of clothing. And, um, little by little, he started to give me a little bit of opportunity to sort of pick things out that I thought would sell. And it was just a thrill. Like it wasn't so much about the money. It was the thrill of guessing right, feeling like this is a product I think will do well and seeing that it does. So that was kind of like the the cookie or, or the drug in that situation. Wow. that I was always ch- kind of chasing that particular high.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. And what a great way to learn entrepreneurship as a whole, right? I mean, boots, on yeah. the ground, front lines, you're you're in the mix. You're yeah. in the thick of it at for, that point. For
1: better or worse. I mean, we right. he, while I was there, he had an employee he caught stealing from him. He had a customer that, you know, just refused to leave the store because of a, you know, kind of a silly problem. And, <laughs> and my step, uh, my uncle rather just, you know, sort of drew the line. Wow. So there was opportunity there to kind of learn really valuable lessons that I still use today. And I would say between my uncle and my stepfather is a longtime salesman it was a better education just watching those guys work than I ever got, you know, going to
0: college. Wow. Yeah, amazing. So on today's episode, we're going to get to know Chris a little bit more, hear more about NTH Watches, discuss how Chris has grown his company and brand over the last six years, how Chris is innovating his business and maintaining the brand that has made him popular with their nod to history brand story. And then we'll dive into some of the organizational strategies that Chris is using to continue to innovate in a very crowded marketplace, which is the watch creation marketplace. Fast forwarding to NTH and Lou and Yui, how did those brands develop? How did you come up with those specific brands in that brand story and philosophy?
1: Yeah, so Lou and Yui came first. And um, the backstory is uh, after college, I went to the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a brief period there where I was um, studying Chinese Mandarin at DLI Defense Language Institute out in Monterey, California. So wow. I knew Chinese Mandarin. I, I, don't, I didn't know it at the time. I, I kind of lost those language skills, but I still had it a little bit. And at that time, when I started researching the watch industry over and over again, every question I had that I Googled would lead me back to, uh, these online watch forums. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was quickly made aware of a phrase, uh, mushroom brands. So a mushroom brand is a brand like a mushroom that kind of pops up overnight, a little bit full of, you know, you know what? And, um, <laughs> you can,
0: you can curse if you want to. Yeah. You can say shit.
1: Mushroom brand is, you know, pops up overnight, grown in shit. It was basically, um a lot of China, uh, brands that are based in China. And there was wow. also this term Germasian. So it's a brand based in Asia that takes on a phony German sounding name to try to portray themselves as being based in Europe, where everybody kind of associates with craftsmanship and whatever, right. to, particularly right. Switzerland and the watch business. Right. So looking at that, I realized, okay. And I, and I also saw that there was sort of a undercurrent of skepticism regarding startup brands. It seemed like a lot of guys had been burned. There were some recent stories of brands that had kind of popped up, taken a lot of people's money, and fizzled out, never delivered a product. Right. So I thought, okay, this is a new world to me, and I need to get in there very quickly, establish my myself. And one of the biggest challenges is going to be establishing credibility. And the way I think the way you do that is by being authentic. So rather than set myself up as a target for ridicule by doing the same thing everybody else is doing, let me go the opposite direction. So if if people are going to assume that we're making watches in China, which, you know, we typically are, let's just find a name that embraces that. Let's go, you know, instead of trying to be more old world centuries old heritage than everybody else, we're going to do exactly opposite. We're going to take a uh, almost cartoon like dog as our logo (laughs) <laughs> and we're going to come up with a, a, a sort of a funny sounding name and we're going to do, th- you know, again, we just, we started doing things really differently. So Lu and Huey is a phonetic spin on a Chinese Mandarin phrase, Luen and Huey, which means reincarnation or rebirth. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of a, a pet philosophy of mine at the time. And it still is about, you know, I, I'm a big believer in second chances. I'm a big believer in people's ability to sort of recreate themselves over and over again. If your mm-hmm. career is in a, mm-hmm. in a sideways slump like mine was you don't have to keep going like that. You don't have to suffer like that. You can just kind of reinvent yourself. Um, but at the same time, um, throughout my career and even before that in the army and even before that in college, I had been underestimated many times. I was always kind of the underdog and you know, when you grow up that way, uh, or you come through those experiences, you tend to develop a little bit of a chip on your shoulder and you get used to it and you go, okay, I'm used to being the guy that gets counted out. I may be down, but I'm never out. So you know, it was a bit of, and I, I just lost my job. I just gotten fired and, and I was angry about it. Mm-hmm, I was, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was the, I hated that job, but I didn't want to get fired from it. Right. And I kind of right. wanted to prove something. So I said, all right, this is my chance at rebirth and, and reinventing myself. I'm going to come back stronger than ever. And that was the attitude behind the brand.
0: I guess there's a little bit of sense of pride there as well, right? Y- yeah. I mean, you, you know, you, know, you, you, you you're working at this place. So obviously you're putting some effort in there and then they just come along and one day it's a banker's box and uh, we'll, you <laughs> we'll know, have security escort you out. Yeah. And, it, and I, I didn't, you know, this is, I, I probably spent too much time thinking about
1: what other people think about me, but um, you know, I, I, I'm the same guy who's worked in numbers, you know, numerous different jobs. Right. And in some companies I was the top performing guy and I was lighting the world on fire. and in other companies, like I couldn't catch a break. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm you know, the common denominator there was always me. And I was always the same guy putting in the same effort, bringing the same set of skills to the table. What was different was really the company, the opportunity, the product, the marketing, the attitude, the philosophy, the right. culture, which I never had control over. So it, I, I was a little bit angry. I felt like I had been cheated and kind of set up for failure a little bit at that company. And, um, you know, there w- there was a little bit of bad blood there when I gotcha. left. Damn. So I said, right. okay, I, you know, you you guys basically did me wrong. You did me dirty. So I'm going to come back and I'm just going to, I don't care who's watching, but I'm going to prove to myself once and for all that I know how to run a business and I know how to treat people. I know how to like create a culture of success and, you know, a, a culture of performance and, 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 you know, a winning attitude. Um, so that was the, you know, again, a lot of it was a little bit too chip on the shoulder. Um, so that was Lewand Huey. That was the first guy we started. Uh, I started the business in 2012, but we really didn't really take off and start sales until 2013, uh, April 2013. I ran that brand um, until I started NTH, my second brand, mm-hmm. in 2016 and, uh, 2016. and the plan originally was... Janus Trading would be like a shell company that would start and run multiple brands, each with its own sort of brand identity, brand image and personality and design aesthetic and all, you know, all that. So I did that for the first, say, two years after launching NTH. But I quickly realized that I just particularly at that time when I was still very much a one man show, I just didn't have enough hours in the day to do everything that I needed to do to support both brands. I ended up working on one, then coming back to the other. You know, I I tried to be efficient by having everything, you know, under the Janice trading umbrella. So one social media account on Instagram and on Facebook and one YouTube channel and I, and one website for both brands. Um, and I've seen that done by others better than I was doing it. And, um, and TH immediately took off. It was immediately sucking up all of my time and efforts. It was immediately more successful than Lou and Huey was, which was you know, respectable in its own right, in terms of what we did with that brand in the first five years it was around. But it was instantly apparent that NTH was going to be bigger. And if you have two horses and you got to pick one to ride, you can only ride one. Which one are you going to ride? The one that's running the fastest lately. And NTH was the one. So um, I guess it was sometime in 2018. Yeah, it was 2018 last year that I made the decision, you know, once we sort of sold through the last of the the, uh, Lou and Huey inventory, I was going to focus all my energy on NTH. So we started a second website for NTH, left the old website, Chad's trading website for Lou and Huey, And then once we got through that, we just shut it down. And now it's just strictly NTH.
0: Wow, that's a, an incredible backstory. I think it really interesting how you sort of pivoted from Lou and Huey to NTH what led you to begin designing NTH separately, which by the way, beautiful watches. I thank see you. your collection here and we're at the NTH HQ right now in, in Wayne, Pennsylvania.
1: As I call it, the, um, the top secret uh, product lab and underground office bunker.
0: Well, now I feel super, uh, <laughs> super privileged to be here. So thank you for having me here. This is great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really cool watch collection. Thank you. Very unique. You define yourself mainly as a micro brand, right? Well, um, that's the term that... It, you know, people use inside the market in
1: the industry for brands like mine, guys that start up, outsource manufacturing, um, are typically using uh, some off-the-shelf components combined with custom design stuff, made right. our spec, what have right. you. And we're doing small volume.
0: So pseudo bespoke, maybe.
1: You don't love that term. No, I mean, it's not that I don't love it. It's a nice term. It's just not as accurate as it could be. I mean, bespoke, I think, typically means... More custom. Custom, one-off. I mean, it's like getting a custom suit as a bespoke suit. I don't make... You can't you can't email me and go I want this watch and I'll pay you anything to get it. It doesn't work that way. I have to Got make a 300 to right. 500 at a time. Right. 50 per version. So it's small volume, limited production. Um yeah, I mean I so my retailers don't really like me saying I'm a micro brand anymore because so many micro brands are smaller than I am now or my right. brand is now right. but also not as maybe professionally run as my brand. Got and it. I'm not I'm not throwing them under the bus. It's just yeah my retailers say, you need to find a better term. So I've been using boutique brand, you know, because it is, it's a boutique. Yeah, it's a good good definition. Yeah, we're not mainstream. We have seven retailers around the world, but you're not going to find us in Macy's or Nordstrom's. Um, we're strictly online. We have a couple of physical retail storefronts in, in other countries, but really it's mostly an online business. And it's and it's for enthusiasm. I mean, most people that are yeah. aware of mainstream brands are not going to be aware of mine.
0: Right. And to your point, you've written on your blog Quote, that micro brands are part of a larger trend of change within the industry. As a group, you need to up your game if you, the group of microbrands, want to continue growing in importance. So why do you think collaboration with your competitors is so important to the growth of micro brands? Wow. Um, so it helps if you understand there's a lot going on in the industry
1: right now. The the watch industry has been going through a decades-long change mm-hmm. since you know the dawn of the electronic age. Um Switzerland was sort of the home of watchmaking for about 20 to 50 years in the post-war period. Prior to that, it was America and England. But Japan started eating Switzerland's lunch. And and Asia in particular, not just Japan, but China now, have really changed the game. And um, the Swiss brands have decided to basically abandon the everyman as a customer and go, you know, purely for luxury, prestige, heritage, because they can't perform... They can't compete against the Japanese or the Chinese now right. on performance at the price, revenue per unit. Well, just rev, you know, re- revenue per unit as a business, you know, sort of view of it. But just at, at the customer level, you know, if you have a choice between a very expensive Swiss watch that's mechanical and doesn't keep time all that accurately, and a very cheap Japanese watch that'll run forever, just change the battery every few years and keeps time like an atomic clock, you know, for most people that's an easy choice to make. Right. So it becomes a, you know a tool on the one hand, versus a luxury item on the other hand. And that's really how the market's been bifurcated. But since then, decades now, there have been this sort of gradual decline in the fortunes of the big Swiss brands and the emergence of uh, Chinese manufacturing and the internet and social media has enabled brands like mine to quickly get into the game, ramp up, build scale, and compete. And any one business, even my business, is still very small, too small to be a threat by itself. But as a group, right? Microbrands represent a big threat to the big established business because we're small, we're nimble, we run pretty lean in terms of our overhead. Um, we don't over invest in marketing that doesn't work. We can very quickly develop new product and really tailor the product directly to the customer's desires. Right. A lot of us are engaged online, talking directly to customers through social media and forums. The challenge is that a lot of the brands are being started by guys who are primarily enthusiasts first and not business people necessarily. they are guys that are running their business part-time while they're still working a full time. It's a side hustle for them. And so when you run the business as a side hustle, you don't have as much pressure to be profitable. You, when you see yourself as primarily an enthusiast, you tend to come at it from a more. I don't know, lackadaisical perspective when it comes to being, you know, ruthless in your business decisions. I don't mean ruthless in the mean way. I mean, you have to make some very difficult decisions. They have to be cut and dry. They have to be financially feasible. And I think a lot of brand owners are underpricing their product, being a little bit too optimistic in their product development plans, not marketing and building their brands enough, um, one of the best ways I've heard it described was at a, uh, coming out of a dinner. I actually organized a dinner in Hong Kong. Uh, we, we do a trade show there every year. So I was there, uh, last year and I organized a dinner. There was about 30 different brand owners there from all over the world. Wow. And there was also a couple of retailers there. And as we were leaving, we were getting into an Uber with one of the retailers. And I said, so, you know, what did you think? And what he said, literally word for word was, I saw a lot of products. I didn't see a lot of brands. So that's a, you know, powerful concept in that, you know, are you, are you just doing a series of projects one after the other and one day you'll be done because the sequence ends or are you building a brand, something organic that has room to grow and it's going to scale and it's going to be something that'll be around for years and years to come. So I see a lot of guys that really focus on product, 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 and don't really think about it as a brand or a business that's being built.
0: So how do you... I guess without giving too much of your secret sauce away, and we'll talk about your involvement with MicroBrand U, MicroBrand University, which Mm -hmm. you've started as well in collaboration with some other coaches. We'll get to that toward the end of the episode, but what advice do you give to other MicroBrand owners who are starting To your point, I mean, a lot of these entrepreneurs who are starting these micro brands get into them because they find it super interesting. A lot of times they're more technically skilled than they are business development and marketing skilled. right? What advice do you typically give to these micro brand owners to kind of help them ramp up?
1: That's a great question. Um, And I feel like I probably didn't do a good enough job answering the last one sort of directly. I got off on a tangent. Yeah. So, you know, I, I guess the, the, the tie in here is, you know, you asked me about collaboration and now we've got Michael brand university where yeah. we're actually trying to teach others how to run a business like this, how to start successfully launch and run a business like this. So there's a lot that we jam in there um, because of who else is on the coaching team with me. I've become sort of by default the finance guy. So I think finance is really important, kind Mm -hmm. of keeping an eye on the numbers. But I'd say if I had to boil everything I do in that course down to, you know, one big takeaway, um, it's what I call the three Ps. So when people ask me, how do you build a successful brand? I always say, look, a successful brand is built on a series of successful projects. And what makes for a successful project is good product design, really solid promotion, and really good pricing strategy. So those are the three Ps. So if it, I always tell them, think of it like a three-legged stool. If one of the legs is missing, you can't compensate by making the other two longer. If one of the legs is weak, you can't compensate by making the other two stronger. If you don't nail those three things, you're really putting yourself at a disadvantage. And while there have been many projects I've seen that I didn't think were going to be successful, and yet they were, there have also been a vast number of projects that were not successful And, you know, in the retro, you know, looking back on them, you can always spot where the weakness is. Mm -hmm. And it's always one of those three. And there's one of those three things or some combination thereof. It's either weak product design, weak pricing, or weak promotion.
0: So you have to look at those three and sort of say, are we executing well enough to be getting this across the finish line? I think the hard thing is that
1: everybody who starts a brand like this is typically well there are guys that are in it just you know doing it to you know make a get rich quick scheme out of it but most which brands, is not not a good idea
0: No, I mean it's, <laughs> entrepreneurship well, is not really a get rich quick scheme kind
1: of thing well you know to be fair to give the devil his due there have been some pretty spectacular uh stories about guys that they put on a fantastic show and they made a lot of money and they rode off into the sunset right but that's not really what micro brands are all about. Micro brands are, yeah. micro brands are typically a cottage business run by an enthusiast selling to an other enthusiasts. So there's a bit of a camaraderie there between the business owner and the customer, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a level playing field or a meeting of the minds. Um, but I think one of the challenges with the three Ps is that a lot of brand owners fall in love with their own product, their own concept. And nobody ever wants to admit that eh, the product, design is kind of weak. And when I say design, I don't just mean the aesthetic looks of the watch, but the entire concept, you know, it's, it could be the specs. It could be, you know, the, it could be anything. It doesn't have to be how it looks, but is this product, has it been built for a particular market? Is the market big enough? Are you going to sell enough? Can you price it right? That's all part of product design. Product development is what the process is to get there. And I think most people tend to rush that. They have sort of a field of dreams approach. If I build it, they will come is sort of the mentality. Uh, and nobody wants to admit that their product stinks right. in terms of its concept. Right. And, and if the if it if it actually does stink, if it's a terrible looking design, that's even worse. Um, a lot of guys are, you know, they make a nice looking watch. It's decent quality, but it's just kind of meh overall. Right. Or it's, you know, redundant right. or I've seen it a hundred times, whatever. Um, And then, you know, there's a lot of pressure to underprice. I think a lot of guys say, well, I haven't got a tremendous marketing budget and I've got to hit these pretty large minimum order quantities when it comes to production. So in order to manage that as a default, they tend to underprice the product and they think it's okay as long as you're making a profit, you can't lose money. But the reality is they don't really understand where their costs are. The fixed costs kill them. They don't understand that. If you make a profit per unit, okay, that's a good start, but how quickly are you doing it? Because your ongoing business maintenance costs will kill you. So it's about turning over your inventory quickly enough. So there's a lot of, again, these are
0: finance terms that are kind of deep in the weeds, but that's a lot of the stuff that I talk about in the course. And can you give us just high level three best practices for each P? So let's start with product design. What are your three best practices? When it comes to product design, one of the core
1: concepts within the you know product development you know sort of area is um, the concept of feasibility. So feasibility is: can this product be made? How quickly can it be developed? How quickly can you get it to market? How quickly can you sell it? Can you price it high enough? Will enough people buy it at that price? That all goes into feasibility, and the way you sort of test that at each stage before you go on to the next is by sort of checking your math or checking your homework. And that includes a little bit of field testing. So it's very common for guys in my business to do prototyping, but there isn't a lot of gaining of feedback or or soliciting feedback before they get to that stage. Like I said, a lot of guys kind of get married to their product or their product idea, and they don't want to budge off of that concept. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it's just unfortunate that look, you know, I I get that you like this concept and you've got 20 guys telling you that they like it, but you have to make 500. And if you can't sell 500 in a relatively short time, the product isn't feasible. So that's the, that's the key uh, one for product design. Um, For pricing strategy, I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to get into this too specifically, but there's a certain multiple, a markup that you need to hit in order to maintain sustainability in your business, um, so there's been some uh, publicly available information put out by publicly traded companies in this industry mm-hmm. that demonstrates that they're at like a six x markup from their production cost to their retail price. Wow! But that's outrageous, and that's why they're you know sitting on so much unsold inventory, and why four times a year, if not more often, you're seeing them dump product at a discount. Um, with micro brands, it tends to be that plus the additional problem of a lot of us are doing pre-orders we're using our customers money to finance our production costs and pre-orders are very often um it's almost like a race to the bottom there's um Sorry, so for, for those listening, my dog is in the office and she she just climbed up to get some get some attention from Tony. So she's right in Tony's face. And and
0: I, I love dogs. So uh... right. and I think she knows that about you. Know, she's on the mic right yeah, now. She's what breathing is? out of the yeah. mic. So that's yeah. my dog. You know, oh well, that's and, and, great. Yeah. Allie, so right? Allie. Yeah. Allie. yeah. 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 She's, she's a boxer. Gorgeous. She's named after she's Muhammad gorgeous. Ali.
1: Yeah. Um, so what was I saying? Oh, so with with microbrands, um when I started my uh my first Kickstarter product uh project um was A watch that I had priced full price in stock, ready for delivery at five fifty, and the Kickstarter price early bird was like four fifty. So not even a twenty percent discount from full retail. Right. And we sold a bunch of them. Now the typical Kickstarter project is forty to fifty percent discount from your full in your full price retail price, which is very often already twenty to thirty percent too low. Right. So you're starting off at at a too low multiple of your costs when you set your retail price and then you're discounting from that 40 to 50% and we're seeing this now where some of these guys are putting up really huge numbers on Kickstarter and then on the back end there's problems in production, multiple delays, their vendors don't have the capacity. They projected a four to five month delivery time and now they're at six to eight months because they underpriced the product instead of actually marketing the product correctly. They sold a ton of them. They put up a huge number, but they're working off a really thin margin, and there's nothing left to really solve, to hire people to increase your bandwidth, and you know it's creating a lot of problems. So with pricing strategy, I would say, you know, with, without coming out and giving the exact number, you know, you have to do more than double your money. That's just not enough to go from production cost to retail. But you can't be up there at six x. Right. So somewhere, maybe somewhere between two x and six x is the right number. And and when you do pre-orders or Kickstarter projects at a discount, you have to be very careful about how you structure those early bird, super early bird, double discount, super discount, you know, sort of pricing. Because as I tell people, look, if you got to make 500 watches, and you can't sell 100 or 200 at a discount, how are you going to sell the other 300 or 400 at full price? On the other hand, once you've sold 80 to 90%, at a, at a deep discount, how are you going to sell the last 10 or 20% at full price? Right. So there's a, it's a really difficult balancing act that you have to pull off there. And it's not always easy but there's some pricing psychology and stuff that we get into a universe. university. Right.
0: There's some issues with perceived value and some of those other consumer perception yeah, I mean, of your brand because of your pricing structure, all of those things. There's right?
1: those things. And you can try some urgency with some of the way you set, you know, you structure the pre-orders, you know, there's, you know, tiers, there's timers, things like that you could set up. And then the last P promotion, um, the, this is one I think that, most people who come to Microbrand University or express an interest in it are most interested in, you know, help me with marketing. How right. do I get people to see my product and my brand and respond to it? How do I suck them in and get them engaged? Um, and, you know, can I do it with advertising or can I do it with, you know, uh, giveaways or, you know, can I do it with social media? And their answer is to some of that, yes. Some of that, no. Right. Some of it you have to do on your own. Some of it you can hire out, some of it you can pay for, some of it you can't. Um, but I typically say, look, this micro brand thing of ours, you know, like the, like the mob says, "Lacosa Nostra, this thing of ours, <laughs> you know, you're supposed to be an enthusiast selling to other enthusiasts. Well, enthusiasts hang out on social media, Enthusiasts right. hang yep. out talking watches on forums. You need to be one of those guys. If you're not, you're an outsider and you don't have a lot of credibility with these guys. So Yeah, you can buy advertising and you can schmooze with the big blogs, you know, the online tastemakers. But at the end of the day, what people, the customers really want is to feel like you hear them. Right. The only way you can hear them is if you are where they are and you respond and you ask questions and you engage. Even if, like me, you're a little bit argumentative at times, that's okay. It's better to get in there and mix things up. So what we preach um, in the sort of broad under the broad umbrella of promotion is content, 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 and engagement, engagement, engagement. You need to create good content and you need to engage. And if you do those two things really well and you sustain that over a long enough time, you're you're, you're dramatically increasing your odds of success.
0: Right. I think you pointed out two interesting things overall throughout our discussion so far about promotion in general. One is we started with this concept and, and you mentioned it about a watchmaker, for example, which is what we're mainly talking about, but it could be any business, right? Where the creator founder creates something for themselves. And it's very problematic because to your point, people want to buy stuff that they're interested in. They want to buy a widget that's useful to them. They don't really care so much about the founder's ego. So that's step one, right? Is getting out of your own head, And then it kind of overlaps into, into the second part, which is you're saying you have to be where your customers are because you have to become one of them so that you can understand them, right? So that you can put yourself in their shoes, understand sort of the psychographic, what's keeping them up at night. What, what are they thinking about? What are the problems that they're actually having that you're going to solve? Not some problem that you've created. Yeah. I mean, it's. I think it's a
1: combination of both. You need to be fired up about your own product and passionate and enthusiastic. And you, of course, need to believe in it. And a lot of us start with, well, this is what I like. This is what I love. This is what I need. This solves a problem for me. Yeah,
0: this is what was missing in the marketplace. But are
1: there enough other people out there who will see it the same way you do? I don't remember exactly where or when I came. I encountered this concept of a micro niche. But watches are a niche product. Mm -hmm. And... For years prior to the internet and and prior to social media and prior to outsourced manufacturing, there just wasn't enough money for a business to, you know, to bother. There wasn't enough people, enough of a market out there, and there wasn't an efficient way to reach those sort of real fringe markets, fringe categories of products, fringe, you know, niches effectively. So why bother if you're a big company and you've got a limited R&D budget, a limited marketing budget, why bother aiming for, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to shoot, shoot center mass, you're not going to shoot, you're not going to try to wing a guy. right? So you have to hit the center of the market as much as often as possible and hit it as hard as possible. That's big, that's, that's big ball, big game, big company strategy. Small company strategy is the exact opposite of that. And it's only been, in the last 20 years or so with the advent of the internet and social media and outsourced manufacturing, that that suddenly become viable. So you can actually create a new product or a new product category that is very much a reflection of who you are as a person or your particular style or design aesthetic or needs or whatever. But there still has to be a certain fundamental level of feasibility there. And you have to sort of test that and stress test it to make sure before you go too far with it. Because even in the new world that we live in where, you know, you can reach your target market pretty successfully and pretty cheaply through social media and, you know, digital ads and and the internet, you know, you're still going to be investing in prototyping. You're still going to be investing in marketing. And in in a lot of ways, I mean, digital advertising now is the new rent You know, the, the internet sort of replaced bricks and mortar stores because bricks and mortar were so expensive to pay for and it was so cheap to be on the internet. Well, now everybody's on the internet and it's so expensive and difficult to get yourself noticed on the internet. Now, all of a sudden- bricks and mortar is becoming more viable. <laughs> so, you know, just because you're on the internet doesn't mean you can sell for less. Doesn't mean doesn't, doesn't mean you're going right. to h- work less hard. Yep. You still have to have a good product. You still have to put the work
0: into getting it in front of the right people, enough of those people, price it right, all of that. So when you're creating a brand philosophy, let's take a step back and go back to that. Now you've figured out what your your uh, product does product design and development, your promotional and your pricing strategies are. Now you need to create a brand story around that, right? Right. That targets that audience you're going after. So what are your some, you know, don't have to give away the farm once again, but what are some of the best practices that you employ in coming up with that?
1: Wow. So um, this is an area where I may have had a natural advantage over a lot of other, I mean, watch geeks as a general rule tend to be, shy, retiring, introverted types. I'm not like that. I was never a watch geek before I got into this business. I've always been kind of an extrovert. So for me, the brand was just naturally an extension of who I was. And and I had a sales background and I sort of was trained in multiple capacities that you are your own brand. You need to be able to tell a good story. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a concept called story selling, not storytelling, story selling. So I've sort of been trained for years, more than a decade in, you know, the power of storytelling. Um, and brands are really stories. Brands are shorthand for a longer narrative. So, you know, for me, the brand was, you know, Lou and Huey. It was in your face, loud and proud. It was a reflection of where my mindset was at the time, but it was also about my story. I got fired. I start this business, whatever. Uh, nod to history or NTH was, you know, Vintage inspiration, modern design, taking things as far as we can go, but also kind of with a little bit of that bad boy attitude injected into it because mm-hmm. that still is me. That's who I am. Um, as far as how do other people make their brand who a reflection of who they are? Um, there's some exercises we do in Microbrand University run by uh, Josh Irons, my marketing guy, mm-hmm. where he does he does things like, well, if you were an animal, what kind of animal would you be? If you were a, a, a plate of food, what, what sort of food would be on that plate? And, and there's a whole bunch of those where little by little, like it sounds like a stupid set of questions to ask, but it starts to make people think about who are who am I as a person. So we did this exercise in, in the last microbrand University, and we're going around the room, and i and i I thought, well, my first instinct was to say a dog. Cause you know, you can tell I've got a dog. Mm-hmm. My first brand, the logo is a dog. I've got this thing on my wall that says if dog were our teachers mm-hmm. uh, and I'm really into dogs, I love dogs, but I realized I'm a bear. Like I'm, you know, a bit, even though I'm an extrovert, I'm a bit solitary. I'm kind of, I do things on my own. Uh, I tend to go through periods of lots of activity followed by periods of like, I'm doing nothing at all. <laughs> so, and I'm, you know, I, I kind of like being sort of the biggest creature in my neck of the woods. So, you know, I'm, I'm a bear. Um, and you know, or if, if you were a musician, who would you be? I'd be Johnny Cash, you know, and, and that's sort of, you start to figure out who you are. And I think a big part of it is just letting yourself be who you are. I made a a strategic decision early on that. And again, this is just personal observation, personal experience. I saw how very often people in a position of They're inside of a business, whether the business owner or not, but they're in a position where they have to speak to the public. And, you know, the public in many ways can be like, you know, a crowd outside the tower holding a bunch of pitchforks and torches. They want your hide. And when there's a a situation like that developing, very often people revert to corporate speak. We're very sorry this happened. We take full responsibility. We're going to make it right. Um, And even if there's a situation like that where you're dealing with a, a crowd of one, one heckler in the crowd of otherwise happy customers telling you you stink and so do your watches. Um, Very often people go like, oh, thanks for that feedback. I'll take it under advisement. I'll take it into consideration. I'll I'll, I'll think about what you said there. And I kind of have the attitude when I see people like there's always that one guy trying to cause trouble. Yeah in the restaurant or at the front date game yep. or whatever. Yep. And we all see that and we all go, don't look at him. Don't make eye contact. Maybe he'll go away. But in the back of our minds, we're always thinking like, I really wish the manager would just tell that guy to get the hell out. Yeah. If he doesn't get out, I hope he calls yeah. the bouncers over. And they do like in casino where Robert De Niro tells the, the bouncers like, I want you to get this guy, escort him off the premises, off his feet. And I want you to use his head to open the door. And I think we cheer for that sometimes. So I kind of became that guy whenever there was a guy in the crowd who was heckling me. Instead of going well, I appreciate that feedback. I really, you know, I'll take that under consideration. No, you just steer into the skid. I steer into it. I go, yeah. you know what, buddy, this maybe isn't for you. Take, you know, take your money and go. Go hit, go hit the bricks, kid. Go pound sand. I'm not changing it. I don't care that you don't like the the, the brand name. I don't care that you don't like the logo. I don't care that you think I'm ripping somebody off, whatever. This obviously isn't for you. Or I would get real smart ass and I go, right. oh, so sign you up to buy two then? You know, like whatever they said, I just kind of played into it. And then, yeah. And like I said, at one point, I was, um, I was having a rough week and we, and a friend of mine was in town and uh, we went out for a beer and, uh, I was kind of relating to him, like, maybe I'm just, you know, like, this is kind of wearing me out at this point. You know, it was was a down week. Which I think a lot of entrepreneurs go through. We go through ups and downs. And when you're going through a down period, it's easy to start to think, uh, you know, am I, you start to question yourself, am I, am I going the right direction? Am I doing this right? Am I, am I doing this all wrong? And I thought, well, Lately, I've been getting into a lot of these stupid online, you know, troll baiting sessions or troll fighting sessions with these guys. (laughs) I mean, I spend all this time on social media talking to watch geeks. And and in every room of watch geeks, there's always some one or two guys that just want to cause problems. So my friend said to me, he goes, you know, Chris, your brand is that you're the guy who's not afraid to call an asshole an asshole. And that's what people like about you. And everybody that likes you and likes your brand knows that about you. You can't, I don't think you have the ability to turn it off and I don't think you should turn it off. Right. I think it's just, you have to embrace that that's who you are and that's who your brand is. And you're going to attract a certain amount of unwanted attention because of that. But every time that happens, I got to tell you, like you win more fans. And I've seen that time and time again, every time some guy starts trolling me and I have it out with the guy, I go to my website and I see a spike in traffic. Wow. And a spike in traffic typically results in a spike in sales. And I see an increase in our email newsletter subscription list, and I see an increase in our social media following. So,
0: as the old adage says, "No such thing as bad there's publicity." There's no such thing as
1: bad press, and I think yeah. in the I think, and some guys will vocalize or, or they'll, they'll write, you know, good for you, Chris. Like stand it up to that guy, right? But I think even the ones that are silently lurking, a lot of them say, "Thank God somebody got, you know told that loud mouth to go pound <laughs> sand." And you know, and but but i say, token. There's guys that go like, I will never buy from this guy because of you know how undiplomatic he was. I thought, okay, that's fair. I don't want to be everybody's cup of tea. I want to be some people's shot of whiskey.
0: That's great. Yeah. Going back to the beginning of your businesses that you, the two different watch brands that you've created, I think with Lou and Yui, your business grew to 40% from year one to two. Is that correct? Uh, Something like that. I don't have the math, but I mean, obviously when
1: you first launch a business, the first year is going to be the best year of growth in terms of percentages, uh, unless it's just terrible.
0: And then 30 the next year, then 20. like that. 40, 25, something like that, yeah. 45. And then I mean, eventually down to 10, which is where you <laughs> kind of said to yourself a few years out, time to revamp, take a step back, take a look at this, figure out what adjustments need to be made to get back on a growth curve rather than the, the path that you were on. So what adjustments did you make at that time to take your business back to a growth curve? Well, I think it's important to
1: sort of figure out why it was slowing down. So I came from finance. I had worked in, you know, in a limited capacity, dealt with, you know, private equity and venture capital and things like that. And I had always seen these growth projections that were parabolic mm-hmm, where, mm-hmm. you know, somebody starts a software company and the first year it's like 20%, but then you're like 200% growth. Right. And I was kind of in that mindset. That doesn't, it doesn't work that way when you start a home-based business, you're a one-man show, it's manufacturing, or making a physical product, there's tremendous capital investment, there's a tremendous lag time, mm-hmm. the design to delivery cycle is a year long. What ended up happening was I was a bit of a control freak, I wasn't delegating or outsourcing enough, um, and I just had, I was, I was the bottleneck in my own business, and that's why the growth started to level off. And it, and the first year it happened, I thought, okay, that's just a bad year. And then the second year I thought, well, okay, I made a couple of mistakes. And the third year I was like, okay, I have to admit that maybe I don't know how to continue growing my business. And when you have 10% year over year growth for three straight years and you still feel overworked and entirely stressed out, underpaid, even as smart as I think I am, I had to throw my hands up and go, I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. So it was a, a completely accidental Interaction with uh, John Tour from Headroom, mm-hmm. and we sat down. We started talking, and I and I thought, okay, you know, there's a saying, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Well, here's my teacher. I I hired him almost immediately. We sat down for two days, did a deep dive on my business, and among other things that came out of that was the sort of realization that okay, I need to empower. I did have people that were part of my team, but I wasn't mm-hmm. empowering mm-hmm. them enough. I wasn't delegating enough. I wasn't handing over enough control. I wasn't outsourcing enough. Um so you were trying to do too much. Well, I was first off I was doing almost all direct sales. I had very little retail distribution. I was probably more than 90% direct sales to consumers. So not only was I doing that, but I was doing almost all of my own marketing, all of my own customer support, all of my own quality control, most of my own design. I had two guys on my design team, but I was really basically getting them to illustrate what I was designing as opposed to actually doing design work itself. Um I was, uh, the only thing I had outsourced up until that point in time was we outsourced manufacturing, obviously, because you're not sitting in a factory with a bunch of, you know, steel presses around the room. Um, And I, with it, after I delivered our second model, I decided I was going to outsource order fulfillment. So when we get new models in, that just goes right to a warehouse. After we do quality control, we get that to a warehouse. And when you place an order on my website, that gets routed to them. They drop it in a box and put it in the mail to you so I don't have to. You know, I'm not going to the post office every day. So those are the only two things that I outsourced up to that point. And I had an ad agency that was doing ads, but they weren't working. So I brought on a marketing guy. I basically gave him the reins to my marketing. I brought on a virtual assistant. She handles 80% of my email and a lot of the social media, sort of just the basic stuff. Like somebody comments, how much is this? Where do I get it? You know, basic stuff. like she that. Handles she can that handle stuff. that. Um, I gave a lot more design control to the two guys on my design team. I brought in a watchmaker between the watchmaker and the virtual assistant. They're doing 80% of the customer support. Um, the watchmaker is also doing 100% of the quality control right now, and he's helping out with the, not the order fulfillment, although he does do a very small amount of that in, you know, sort of exceptional cases. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when we have a new product come in um, before I go there, so we've we we we've gone from being more than 90% direct sales. I built out a retail distribution network, yeah. seven or eight retailers at one point mm-hmm. around the world. So now we are over 90% through retail, less than 10% direct to customer. Wow. So now when we have a new model come in, Dan, my watchmaker, will receive that directly. I won't have to get it first. Dan will do all the quality control. Dan will fix everything that's wrong. If you know, And there's not that much typically. Um, but then he'll also, if we have 20 pieces going to this retailer and 40 going to that retailer, he'll do all that boxing up. And, you know, handle 80% of that work. Wow. All I got to do is create labels and send them over to him. He drops them off of FedEx. So it's taken a lot off my plate, which has allowed me to focus on the more strategic stuff like new model development. Where do we want to go next year? Do we want to explore maybe doing some domestic assembly, domestic production, things that are going to really move the needle long term? Um, and that gives me a more time to kind of keep my finger on the pulse of the market. I'm spending a little bit, probably too much time on social media, but the time on social media I look at as a, that's keeping an eye on my market, keeping an eye on my competitors, keeping right. an eye on what my, right. my customers or potential customers are saying. So, you know, again, I've got the advantage of doing this full time and I've been doing it full time since day one. But when you start to build out a good people group a group team and you outsource and you delegate effectively, it frees up a lot of time and you start to get really good as a business. So that's been, you know, sort of the, the key to growth is just to, understand that I was the bottleneck in my own business and to not let myself be that anymore
0: which is a problem that a lot of entrepreneurs face throughout their careers yeah, I mean, right through the ebbs and flows that yeah yeah kinda- I, mean,
1: I, I advise that you know doing this sort of simple exercise as a thought experiment so I think the reason most people people uh, entrepreneurs that are a bit like me control freaks and, and have gotten used to doing everything themselves because they are so damn good at it and the customer wants it from me and nobody else can be me. Right. Okay. After a while, that starts out being true, but after a while, it's an excuse for why your business isn't growing. So try this. Okay. So you're baking a cake and you're, or you're taking the customer's money at the register, whatever. Okay. Let's just say for the sake of discussion, you are the best at that. And anybody you hire is not going to be quite as good. So what? Okay, now what? Okay, what's the worst possible thing that can happen if the person you hire to do it is only 80% as good as you? If it frees up 100% of your time? Then try this on for size. What if they're actually better at it than you? What if there's something you're doing wrong or you could be doing better without even realizing it and this other person would actually be doing it better? So I found that although I, I thought I was pretty good at quality control, Dan's better than me. I actually trained him how to do quality control for me, and now he's doing it better than I was ever doing it. So, you know, that's just one example. But if you can start to play those mental games with mm-hmm. yourself and say, okay, what's mm-hmm. the worst possible thing that can happen if the person I hire – I mean, if the person is a complete train wreck and you have to fire them – if you, you fire them. You fire them. And if – okay, so maybe – you apologize to the customer that, you know, interacted with this train wreck of an yeah, employee. Right. If you apologize, you own up to like, hey, you know what? I'm sorry about that. And, you know, here's a free cake or whatever. Okay, fine. Customer will forgive you. Worst case scenario, you maybe lose one customer. You lose two customers. Um, if it's a, su- a situation where you, you literally could lose your entire business because you made a bad hire decision. Okay. Maybe don't delegate that all at once. But, you know, maybe think about bringing on multiple people, training them right, mentoring them. Making sure that you're inspecting what you know they're supposed to be doing, you know, don't hand over the reins all at once and walk away. So there's a there's a process. And I'm not the expert on how to do all that, regardless of what kind of business it is, but those guys are out there. So if you're having a hard time growing your business and you really are a one person show, you need to figure out how to not be a one person show.
0: But you hit the nail on the head. I mean, a lot of the entrepreneurs that I talk to, whether they're clients, friends, you know, people I meet at events or whatever. You hear that so often, yeah. right? And there's not but enough time I, in the day. Yeah, I got to do this. Like, I have to be the one to do this. And the funny thing is that that they're kind of complaining about it, of course, because right. um, it drives them crazy, right? you know, because they have so many things to do. But at the same time, you try to say to them, hey, listen, Microsoft runs. Yeah. Google yeah. kills it. You know, well, these massive companies, and it's not one or two or three people. They have to hire people to take over these roles so that they can grow and scale. Yeah. Well, and try this one for size too. So when you
1: are uh, an entrepreneur and you're dealing direct with the customer and you have a cordial relationship, either mm-hmm. you're seeing the customer face-to-face, you're dealing with them by email, or you're seeing them on social media, you, you, you start to develop friendships. Well, friends ask favors. Friends come sometimes take advantage. You have to remember that the customer-seller relationship is not necessarily adversarial, but you don't necessarily want the same things out of this relationship. The customer wants the best possible product or service for the least amount of money. You want to make as most, as much money as possible. So I frequently found that in my email, I would, I would get sucked into an email exchange with somebody who was complaining about something that wasn't really very reasonable or they weren't accepting. They weren't, they weren't being reasonable in their expectations. And I realized, I'm like, you know what? Very often they would say something like, well, you're the owner of the company, you can make an exception to the policy. And I didn't want to make an exception. That's why I have a policy. And every time I made an exception, I regretted it. But when I hired a virtual assistant, they don't ask the virtual assistant to make an exception to policy because it's not her or his company. That's a good point. So, you know, very often I I would peek into these, you know, emails coming in Mm -hmm, that my virtual mm -hmm. assistant's handling. Mm -hmm. And I would see these situations. I'm like, wow, if that were me dealing with that, that would be three hours of email exchanges going back and forth. And this person handled it in three minutes and we're done. So very often, again, you may think that the best person to do something in your business is you because you're the genius behind the business. Very often you're wrong because people will see that and they take advantage. Nobody asks the maitre d' or, you know, the person that isn't running the business to make an exception. They only ask the business owner. It's a good point. Yeah. Great point.
0: Um, okay. So, now we're shifting to micro brand university. So out of all of this, out of your experience, uh, out of your trials and tribulations, so to speak, you come up with the concept of Microbrand university where micro brands can learn from yourself or entrepreneurs in general, right. Can come to you, learn from you and a few other experts slash coaches, um, who can help them train up, so to speak, and really get the skill set that they need to grow and scale their businesses. So what are the key areas that businesses should be focusing on improving right away to course correct? Obviously going back to the three Ps, reassessing that, what data would you say is important to collect and look at? And what are some of the other things you look at when you're looking at a business that's joining micro brand you?
1: Oh, there's there's lots on there. Um, All right, so I'll start from the top. So we have four coaches. Mm -hmm. John Tour, who is my business coach, he is a process engineer with deep experience in manufacturing, but his business, his own business, Headroom, is basically a business consultancy that just deals with how to grow your business. So he is very focused on process, as you would expect, him being a process engineer. But a lot of what goes wrong in business or a lot of what is holding businesses back is rooted in process. So I'm a big believer that, and I've always been this way, but particularly since getting, sitting down with John, if you can look at what is it you're actually doing in your business and the process of what you're doing, you can very quickly start to identify where the hiccups are, or where the opportunities for adding efficiency or improving operations are. Mm-hmm. So process is a big one. John tour, uh, covers that also, you know, kind of business strategy. If you don't know where you want to go, how are you going to get there? So he, he handles that, that, you know, stuff day one, day two. Um, and then obviously I talked about finance a lot. I get, I basically say, look, I'm going to give you a semester's worth, you know, a master's level course in accounting in three hours. Um, but on top of that, we get, I do, uh, you know, a little bit of business strategy. It dovetails a lot with what John does, but also what Josh, our marketing guy does, Mm -hmm. um, I get into different launch vehicles, you know, product concepts, pricing, Uh, a lot of it, I'm kind of a a numbers guy, so a lot of it for me, most problems can be boiled down to be a math problem in many ways. So I end up looking at, I'm very data analytical, so I try to be very cut and dry in what I'm delivering. and, you know, I, I, try to encourage business owners, look, you know, you need to have a good p- bookkeeping system. You need to look at your numbers. You need to understand how the numbers affect your business day to day. You need to understand the importance of turnover and profit margins and pricing strategy. If you don't, and you don't know what your overhead is, you're going to find, you know, you're going to very quickly get some ugly surprises at the end of the year when you go yeah. to file your taxes or whatever. Right, right. Um, then Josh Irons of River Avenue Digital is my marketing guy. Uh, my, he's basically my default chief marketing officer and he's the coach that deals obviously with marketing and he gets into branding and differentiation and the power of stories and, you know, kind of helping to figure out, okay, you have to do content, you have to do engagement. Well, what does that content look like? What does engagement look like? You know, what's the correct pacing and, 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 you know, what are the, the, the tactics involved in that overall strategy? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then lastly is um, my friend, John Keel, who is uh, the owner of a company called watch gauge up in New York. It's a multi-brand e-commerce store. He is my number one retailer. I have, my brand happens to be his number one brand. So we're about as close to being partners as you can get. And we're good friends. Um, and John handles, uh, and John's got, before he started his business, he had a background in the luxury side of the business. He ran a luxury brand uh, AD, which is like a, you know, multi-brand store for luxury brands. Mm-hmm. Um, he was actually a national sales manager for a Swiss luxury brand, traveled all over the country carrying a bag. So John, yeah, so he, he can speak both to, How the big boys play the game, but also, you know, from his perspective as a store owner carrying brands like mine, what does he need? So he gets into retail distribution strategy, um, but he also understands direct-to-consumer very well because he deals with a lot. You know, he's selling direct-to-consumer. So it's a, a lot of what he has to do and say applies directly to a business like mine, whether you're going to sell through a retail channel or you're going to sell direct to a customer. He understands you know, the, the importance of having good store policies and you know, what does good customer support look like and good customer service and pricing and all that. So it's, I like having him there because he in some way says the same thing I'm saying, but it's not me saying it. Right. Which right. maybe counts for more in some cases. Because for me to tell a competitor, this is what you have to do, maybe I have a dog in the, in the hunt or, you know, I have an ax to grind, but he doesn't. So those are the four areas that we focus on. And uh, I think they're all important. As far as, you know, within each of those areas, what do we tell people to look for? You know, I think John Tour, his most valuable content is the product development process. You know, that is, I think, just real key. And that applies not just to the watch business, but to any business and not just making a physical product, but if you're going to develop a service, making sure that you're doing that process of developing that service correctly. Um With Josh, again, it's, you know, differentiation, 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 you know, Mm -hmm. there's a lot to be said for making a product that is a known product with a known market, but just making it better or cheaper or faster. But there's also a lot to be said for creating a brand new category or distancing yourself from the pack through differentiation. Um, for me, you know, again, it's just focusing on the numbers of your business, understanding the numbers, have those numbers tattooed on your frontal lobe. If you don't know the numbers of your business, odds are your business probably isn't doing as yeah, well as, right. as you might think. If
0: you're not tracking it, you don't know where you're going and, and what dead end might be up ahead. Yeah. And then John Keel,
1: I'd say, you know, one of his biggest uh, areas of, uh, I think one of the biggest takeaways people get from him is just, it goes back to something I talked about earlier. There's so much there's a glut of product available on the market right now in the the watch world. And I think this is true of a lot of businesses there, you know, competition can be pretty thick. There can be a lot of people that are just churning out cheap product or cheap service. There's always somebody willing to do the same thing you're doing a little bit cheaper, right? Maybe not as good or high quality, but a lot of customers don't really see it. They just want the lowest price. Yeah. And what happens in the watch business a lot is, you know, you come out with a stupid high MSRP two thousand dollars and then but you're really going to be selling it for twelve hundred dollars and when you can't sell it for twelve hundred dollars you blow it out at six hundred dollars and that just kills your brand equity and yep. it makes retailers not want to work with you right so that's the stuff that john talks about a lot and i don't know if that really answers your question no it, it does that's a, really you know, interesting so looking at there.
0: those sort of key issues and then kind of reverse engineering everything to make sure that you're being the most efficient you can be in all of those spaces <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, there, for every problem, there's a solution if you look hard enough, and, and that's kind of where we get into it. Everything we do at Microbrand University, we it, we tend to interject and interrupt each other a lot, and it's very interactive. But that's because so much of what we're talking about in there dovetails with what somebody else is going to be talking about. So it's impossible for me to talk about pricing strategy without bringing up product development right. or the retail distribution model or you know content. You know, it all of that stuff goes together, even though. On the surface, it may not seem connected, but if you tell a good story, if you have a good price, if you do good product development, you know, that that's all that stuff kind of starts to feed off each other. So you can support a higher price with better, better content, better storytelling, better engagement, you know, better quality. You can support a higher price if you have a, a product that is better thought out, a better concept to begin with. So, you know, there you go.
0: So I have a question from another entrepreneur that we were going back and forth talking about some of these things. I think the question fits really well into this discussion. So I'm going to ask on their behalf, but I'll leave them anonymous for now. Okay. So my friend recently asked me how best to navigate the service offerings that are being offered to a lot of micro brands and startups. So- you know, as you know, you're getting constantly pitched by lawyers, accountants, uh, financial planners, bookkeepers, uh, people who have software solutions for all sorts of things. So he feels a little inundated with all of the supplemental services, quote unquote, being offered to startups or to micro brands or entrepreneurs in general. So he's unsure how to differentiate which services are necessary versus which should be considered a luxury that you add on as you're growing and scaling. So you know, what provides the most value to you early on? What are some of the necessary services uh, that are really important and why? Wow.
1: Where to start with that? So um, (laughs) I know how he feels. I too get inundated with offers and you know, I run an e-commerce site. The platform that my store is on has um, the built-in functionality is kind of light. Everything you want to do that's in addition to the built-in functionality, you either mm-hmm. have to find an app, a plugin app, and there are loads, like zillions of them out there, or you have to hire somebody to do custom coding. So right. there's all these different apps. And sometimes, and this, you know, going to segue into an answer here. Um, a lot of times I, I think that if you don't have a problem, then why are you thinking about a solution? So a lot of people will pitch you on solutions to problems that you don't actually have. Mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. somebody, um, a peer actually ask me, what CRM do you use? And I thought, well, okay, I came from sales. CRM means customer relationship management yeah, right. to me. Certainly, you don't mean that. They're like, oh, you know, we mean. I'm, I'm like, you, you, you run a, you run an e-commerce website. All of your customer data and order data and historical data is all built into your website, right?
0: Why do you need a customer relationship management system? I, right. I don't even know what what the point is. Right. Um, right. Do you really need Salesforce or HubSpot or whatever? Right. If you know it's kind of all being tracked and, and right. collected for
1: you. Or another one was, um, you know, you're doing a Kickstarter project. Are you using BackerKit when you're done? I don't even know what that is. But like, well, BackerKit <laughs> is to basically manage the process of taking everybody. I'm like, no, 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 no. I said everybody that went back to me on Kickstarter for a successful project, I hit them with an email. I tell them, go to my website, create a customer account, use this coupon code. Cause you already paid me through Kickstarter. Use this customer code at, or coupon code at checkout and we're done. Like what, what, what backer right, kit? Right. I, I don't need a survey. Right. Just create the product, let people buy it. I don't need, you know, to find out their address information through backer kit. They can just give it to me when they go to right. checkout on the website, like don't right. overcomplicate your life. So I would say keep things simple is a good, you know, philosophy to maintain. Yep. Um, if You find yourself feeling like, and I felt this way a number of times that I'm probably not maximizing the value of some free tools or cheap tools out there, like, you know, some things that plug into my website. Okay, well, when there's a pause in the action, if you're looking for a way to kill half an hour between phone calls or, you know, meetings or whatever, okay, spend that half an hour surfing the app's marketplace for your website yep. or set aside half an hour a week or an hour a week to do that. And just, you know, I think time management and being organized, I used to have right above my desk facing me a, um, a model, uh, pr- product development calendar, which took into account, you know, seasonality and holidays and, and all that stuff. And I say, okay, this month I'm going to be doing these three things I'm going to be working mm-hmm. on. This product at this stage, but I'll also be getting this product through this stage, and we'll overlap these cycles. And that's how it never really worked out that way. In reality, right, right. you always get sidetracked for some reason, or you get thrown a curveball. But at least have a plan to start with, even if you have to veer away from it. But if you're just going to read every email that comes across your inbox or, you know, look at every app or listen to everybody who says you need this product because of this, you're never going to get any actual work done. <laughs> so That's I, a good point. Yeah. So I think just keep <laughs> it simple. I, I mean, a lot of my business is Excel spreadsheets. Right. Um, we keep things simple. So I have, I have an e-commerce website. Um, we have, there's maybe a dozen apps built in, but they're all pretty light. They're just, you know, one function that we needed plugged it in, worked right away. We may have had to go through a couple of different apps to figure out which one we liked best or which one worked best. Um, my old website that I, uh, from for Lou and Huey before this was on a platform that had a lot of built-in functionality. So mm-hmm. I didn't do all of that. So this is a little bit more intensive when it comes to custom coding or finding the right app. But a lot of it is Excel spreadsheets. I use QuickBooks for my bookkeeping. You know, again, it's online. It ties right into my bank, right into my credit card. Um, I don't use a CRM. I have, you know, again, you outsource. I have a marketing guy. If he's figuring out how to do social media with Hootsuite or whatever, that's on him. Like, let right. him figure that right. out. Right. Um, if my uh, watchmaker wants to keep track of his work and his time using an Excel spreadsheet, fine, do that. I mean, I've got a couple of designers. It's on them to figure out what programs to use and which ones they like best. You just give me the final product. Here's, me, here's the expectation that right. I expect. Right. Here's the results I want. You tell me when they're done. And you care.
0: have a VA, you mentioned that. I have virtual assistant. Which I think, you know, personally, I'm I'm a huge fan of having a good assistant. Yeah. Helps she's great. you, yeah, helps you sift through things, like you said, helps be a gatekeeper to you, like you said. Yeah. But overall, um, overall
1: our investment in tools or services or whatever is pretty light. I've got a I've got an attorney, I got an accountant. Uh, I've actually got two attorneys now. I've got a regular general business attorney. I have an IP attorney who mm-hmm. specializes yep. in intellectual right. property. Yep. We're going through the process right now of trademarking our brand all around the world. Right. So that's, you know, it, we've gotten to that point as a business where we've got worldwide distribution. We need to protect our our brand equity that way. Uh, I've, I've heard some horror stories from friends. So i got yep. two lawyers, an accountant. Um, I've got couple designers on the team. They're both freelance. I've got a watchmaker. He's independent. I've got a marketing guy. He runs his own business. I've got a virtual assistant. I've got all these people. And, you know, those are the services I need. If something happens, I mean, we had a custom coder for the website for a while, Mm -hmm. but all of that stuff was driven first by realizing I had a problem that I needed to solve. If you don't have a problem or you don't realize you have a problem, table it. That's a good advice. A lot of stuff just kind of rolls off my back. It comes across, and I just go, "Yeah, whatever."
0: I think it is important, though, not to self-promote, but it is important to have a good attorney. It's important to have a good good accountant. um, Oh yeah, absolutely. Especially early on, because a lot of those those are the services that, if you make a mistake, can quintuple in price. Can become very detrimental to your business if you screw something up. So yeah, probably a good idea to hire somebody that's good. My advice personally, um, you know, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, but I usually tell people, Hey, when you're looking for an attorney, whether it's me or somebody else, look for somebody that speaks your language that you know, like, and trust. I mean, no brainer.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, and I used to do it when I was in sales, I used to do a lot of networking. So that's how I met my attorney. We hit it off. We've been friends and you know, He's not he's not just my attorney. He's a good friend. Yeah. He's a confidant. Yeah. I go to him for various things. And if he does if he doesn't specialize in something that I need, he refers He'll me to point you in the right direction. Yeah, like yeah. I had a real estate thing happening. Yep. He pointed me to the right guy. Right. Uh, I was looking at raising uh, some equity at one point. He pointed me to a right to the right guy. Um, so yeah, and I would say for startups especially, having, you know, at least a general business attorney, somebody yep. who specializes in that right. type of law is good especially if they have at least a, you know, solid grounding in IP, yeah. you know, so branding right. and trademarking. Critical. Yeah. I've seen this a, a few times where somebody didn't cross their T's and dot their I's. Yep. Um, and it's not just a legal thing. It's also, you know, sometimes a, a, an attorney, believe it or not, many attorneys are actually smart guys. Who understand business? Not not a lot of us, but right. some of us are. <laughs> so you know, it's just good to have somebody else to use the sounding board. Yeah. So it I mean, is. just yeah, to, yeah. this this didn't happen with an attorney, but I've seen this recently, and I think it's something that an attorney probably could have spotted. But there's a a guy, a young man, starting up a brand, and I forget the name. But the reason I forget the name is the name is extremely similar to oh, it's a it's a brand. I think it's called Alta A L T A. But meanwhile, there's already another brand called Alta. A-U-L-T-A. In the same space? In the same space. Ooh, and there's also an Alsta, A-L-S-T-A. Alsta was actually, uh, if you've ever seen the movie Jaws, the character of uh, Richard he- uh, Hooper, played by Richard Dreyfuss, he wore an Alsta. And that brand is actually coming back now. So there's already an Alsta wow. and an Alta with an A-U. Yep. And this guy's coming out with a brand called Alta. And then there was another one called Atra. Yep. And I'm, I said to this young man, I'm like, you know, If you haven't already gotten married to the name, maybe you want to rethink this. Like, not just for the sake of staying out of court in a trademark infringement suit, but how about, you know, when somebody goes to Google the name, are they going to end up with your competitor's website? Is the URL available? Is somebody going to get confused. You know, all that stuff is worth thinking about. So even if that's not necessarily legal advice, a lawyer may actually be smart enough to say to you, have you really thought this through? I've heard of companies with similar names.
0: Yeah, to your point, I mean, I I do practice in IP and particularly in trademarks as well. And I do uh, general business and outside general counsel representation with a lot of my clients. And to your point, I've seen on the front lines, many people who wait too late to register their trademark, which is not that costly up front. But it's a complete nightmare if you've got a rebrand or if you get caught by the other brand that's very similar to yours and they sue you to your point. Now you've got a crap storm to deal with. Oh, and it gets worse than that. This is a a true story. It's really bad.
1: My closest friend in the business is a guy down in Melbourne, Australia named mm-hmm. Sujain Krishnan. He's got a company called Melbourne Watch Company. And he started this business not very, very soon after I started mine. And we've been close friends ever yeah. since. So you talk about them a lot on your blog. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, there's three amigos. It's me, Su Jane, and this other guy named Chip, who has a brand called Avig based out of the Netherlands. And mm-hmm. he's a funny guy too. So anyway, um, Sujain has this company called Melbourne and he's got a logo that is a stylized M and the uh, 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 vertical, uh, slanted lines of the M are, uh, watch hands mm. in the, in the logo mm-hmm. and it's in a circle. So it's, you know, kind of a, a, a cool sort of a logo. Yeah. Um, so he's based out of Australia. There was a company based somewhere in the EU, I think Spain that actually set up a Melbourne watch company with an extremely similar logo, trademarked that in the EU. Yep. And now he basically He can ship watches to customers in the EU, but he can't set up a retail distributor in the EU because the distributor would get sued. Yep. And not only is he barred from setting up a retail relationship like the one I have in the EU, but he's actually had people who bought the other guy's watch, which was a piece of crap, contact him for support. Yep. So he's getting the support emails and calls from this other brand on watches he never sold. And, you know, for all he knows, there are people that are looking for him that are finding them. So those are the types of things that can happen. And again, you know, he's not, he hasn't been sued. He, you know, just got a lot of problems that stem from this problem. And then, you know, real quick, an extension of that, a lot of us, so I talked to a lot of my peers, a lot of us end up getting these weird, I guess, threatening sort of letters from guys um, that the scam is basically... Somebody will set up a company in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. Turkey, wherever, with your business name and they'll basically try to suck you into a legal battle. But meanwhile, it's almost like lawyers over there doing this scam Yep. where it's lawyers setting it up. They're just trying to get you to hire them to fight this non-existent the Middle East is the wild West. Right. So that yeah. happens a lot. We, a lot of us have gotten these sort of call these emails yeah. or these letters where basically it's like, you need to come or pay me to defend to your yeah. rights to your name in Turkey or somewhere else in the Middle East, because there's another guy who's trying to set up a company with the same name. Yep. And if you don't fight it, he's going to own the name, not you. And I was like, all right, first off, you want too much money. Secondly, I'm not buying this at all. <laughs> Third, I don't sell into Turkey. I mean, if somebody wants yeah, to buy a watch right. there, you can't stop me. I'm not gonna put a retailer in Turkey. Right. So you get right. you know, hit the bricks. Yeah,
0: it is it is tough though from a trademark perspective to get trademarks out there because there's um Oh, it's a nightmare. It, it's very difficult. The laws are are not friendly to outsiders, and there's all sorts of craziness that can happen. Right. But, so
1: I so my my attorney, who's also named Chris, turned me on to a specialist in this area, international. IP and trade law Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we're going through the process of all the different jurisdictions and some of them are you know you can apply once and it's good for 20 different countries and some of them you got to apply specifically and it's costing thousands of dollars but my business has grown to the point now where I'm like okay if I want to go to you got a big
0: enough footprint you got to defend
1: yourself well and also I'm looking ahead like if I want to open up a retailer in Japan I better make sure I don't get sued by somebody
0: else who already beat me to it. Or worse, you know, like you're going in, and to your point, there's a copycat that's created your brand, right? And now you're screwed. You've right. screwed yourself out of it. How often I see somebody yeah. doing something? And I go, did you even bother to yeah. Google this before you tried it?
1: because you're you're there's nobody either there's ten other guys doing the exact same thing using the same damn name. yeah, or there are ten other guys doing something completely different using very similar if any so anybody's searching for your brand name? I'll, I'll give you an example. There was a guy. Uh, whose last name was Silver, who started the Silver Watch Company. Mm-hmm, and I'm mm-hmm. like, think about that. Not a good idea. Yeah, somebody Googles Silver Watch, they're going to come up with the, you know, 10,000 search hits for vintage watches made of silver. Exactly. And I understand, I respect the fact that your last name is Silver, but that maybe isn't the best idea for right. a brand name. Yep. Um, I'll give you two quick examples of, of other kind of horror stories that happen in the business. So the first one is... um there's a, there's a, a thing in the watch world called a NATO strap. It's a, it's a fabric strap named after the North Atlantic treaty organization, I, AKA NATO. Mm-hmm. And everybody calls them NATO straps. We've been calling them NATO straps for, for a while. And they're basically just, you know, they're, they're a strap that is worn by guys in the military. So somebody actually had the bright idea to trademark the name NATO strap and some idiot inside the USPTO actually granted this guy the trademark who, he then went around suing all the other (laughs) NATO strap sellers into the ground. And every time one of these guys capitulated, I guess in, you know, the legal world, you understand and and the builds precedents, it builds precedents. So every time this guy got some small potato operator to shut down or give him a royalty or, or, or say something in, you know, in a blurb on the website that this guy owns the rights to the, it just sets more and more precedent, so he can go after bigger and bigger fish. Yep. Um, and you know, eventually I think somebody did actually stand up to him and drag him into court. Cause we were all praying that, you know, one of the bigger companies will yeah, eventually fight yeah. this, but he was basically biding his time and collecting you know, racking up, you know, putting notches on his belt. So that was one horror story. Um, the other one, this one's actually really bad. So a young man started a company called Vordic. um, and they basically take old pocket watch movements and dials, and they clean them up, and they put them into new, newly manufactured cases, typically 3D mm. printed. And they will use the original movement and dial. Um, but they sell them as vortex But if it was an original vintage dial, it may say Elgin, Illinois, Waltham, Hamilton, some old American-made watch company which is no longer in business. The problem is… One of those companies is still in business, not in America. Hamilton was the last of the Mohicans, the last great American watch company. The brand basically shuttered its doors, but the brand name was sold to Swatch Group, which is the 800-pound gorilla in right, our business. Right. And they were selling Vortec watches with Hamilton on the dial because it was an original Hamilton dial. So they're being sued now by Swatch Group and it's tens of thousands of dollars going out the door. Oh, yeah. And they're getting, you know, and they're based in Colorado. They're getting dragged to New York. Yep. And Swatch Group, I mean, they're a multi-billion dollar publicly traded company. They got lawyers all day long. They can just bleed a small company dry. Yep. So, and that was one where he actually got a lawyer early on to tell him, no, I think you're safe here. Um, But I think a good lawyer would have said, You probably have a solid legal footing, but this isn't a battle you're going to want to fight, even if you're in the right, because you're going to to get bled dry. Um,
0: So, yeah, thanks for for answering that. I think that was great. Thanks for all your time on the show. This has been amazing. Uh, At the end of the show, we wrap up with a little game called First, Last, Best, and Worst. I'm going to throw two categories at you. You give us the first one, the last one, the best one, and the worst one. Sound good? Okay. All right. First, last, best, and worst entrepreneurial challenges you've faced.
1: Wow. Uh, first was, I think, establishing myself as a known entity that was credible within the marketplace. How'd you do that? Walk us through that a little bit. Content, 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 engagement, engagement, engagement. I made my, I, I started spending a lot of time talking to other watch enthusiasts online, being entertaining, asking questions, just letting my true personality show and making friendships and then... After six months of doing that a lot, um, I think I had built up a lot of goodwill and credibility so that when I started to say, okay, I'm opening up a, my my own business. Here you go. I had a lot of, you know, sort of built in customers ready. Um, so that was the first, the was the last. first last entrepreneurial challenge I had to face most um, recent. Yeah. So, um, so I've been doing a seven years and this year in particular, I kind of feel like, um, I guess it's sort of a dip in my motivation that, you know, I, I feel like I've, I've accomplished everything I set out to accomplish. I've proven everything that I've set out to prove. And it's sort of like, you know, eye of the tiger, you know, when you're the champ and everybody's you know taking swipes at you, it starts to wear you down every er, yeah. after a while. Right. And uh, it's hard to maintain motivation, especially if you get, you know, set back here, you're busy there. This year has not been a fantastic year industry wide And, you know, I've had, you know, a couple of, you know, there's personal stuff going on in the family, whatever. I mean, it's always something. And after a while you just go, eh, I mean, it's a seven year itch maybe. Yeah. I was just going to
0: say, it's like entrepreneurship is like a relationship a lot of
1: times, right? Well, yeah, yeah. And I think there's something inside, at least it's inside of me that I tend to get fired up and motivated for a challenge. But once you Overcome the challenge. Well, okay, well, what's the next one? If there right. isn't one, you tend right. to lose interest right. or get bored. So it's been hard for me to maintain motivation this year. So that was a, that was the last, the best challenge. Um I, I would say um we did a this is the first one that pops in my mind. There's probably mm-hmm. a better answer if I thought about it more, but we did a model last year. Uh we started actually in 2017 called the Devil Ray. And um that in my mind is sort of our Mona Lisa it's, you know, NTH and a little bit Lou and Huey before that, you know, when you're doing product design, something like a watch, you know, if you're designing a car, cars have four wheels and engine doors, they're, they're, you know, you're not going to reinvent the car necessarily, you know, unless it's a helicopter. So, you know, you're, you're working within a medium where there's structure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. if you're designing a watch, there's only so many places you can put the 12 and it, it's, that you know, do north. Right. So uh the devil, you know, all of our designs were in some to some degree derivative, especially with NTH where we're doing vintage vintage inspiration. We're doing a certain degree a number of homages. But uh the Devil Ray was started with a clean slate. There were a lot of different challenges to overcome with that design. And um I've got a guy on my design team named Rusty that does a lot of the Case design work in three dimensions. That was one that that concept was so difficult and so sort of nebulous to start that I actually drew that case myself, which is something that I did early on. I drew my own cases, but I hadn't done that in a while. The last like three, four years, I just haven't touched the case design because I had Rusty doing all of that at my direction. So I actually had to break out the old school tools and literally draw that case, which wow. was very challenging. Wow. Uh, Cause it's, you know, it's a complex case design. It's got like a recessed bezel and it's, I mean, There's a lot of deep in the weed stuff that nobody's going to understand if they're not going to watch but there was a <laughs> lot, there was, it was, it was, a, it was a very difficult dis- case to design. Um, so that was the, was that the best, best. challenge? Yeah. That was the best. Right? So, so I had to come your worst, worst, worst yeah. challenge. Uh, um, the worst, worst challenge. Oh, so, um, this one was actually nearly the most devastating. Um, I'll, I'll give you sort of a two, a twofer here, mm-hmm. you know, bonus worst. So the f- very first model we made, um, there was a lot of expectations built up around it. We, I, I, I had very aggressive goals with the product concept and um, the core component, the, the the engine inside of a watch is called the movement. Mm-hmm. This was a automatic chronograph movement, which is almost like um, a clock movement with a stopwatch function. So it's almost like two clocks in one. Mm -hmm. They're very complex movements and they're very difficult to find automatic and affordable. So we had very limited choices of movements. We ended up going with a Chinese made caliber, which was based on an old Swiss design and was supposedly, you know, very reliable. And it wasn't, we had a huge defect rate. In fact, we had problems before we'd even finished production before we even delivered the watch. After we delivered the watch, the problems just got bigger. So that was the one that almost blew me and my business out of the water before it even got off the ground. The silver lining there is um, I priced it high enough and gave myself enough margin that I could afford to support every single customer who bought one. They either got a watch that worked or they got their money back. I built up a lot of goodwill with that, but it was a more, scary time. I'm it was sure. a very scary time. Yeah. A lot of sleepless nights, you yeah. know, more than a year long struggle dealing wow. with that $25,000 just in return logistics shipping. So that's, Whoa. you know, it was a big nut. Uh, and then a couple of years later um, we came out with a design. This was actually the first time I worked with my guy, Rusty, the 3d guy. Um, we did a model called the legends racer, which was an homage to the tag Warrior Monaco it was a square case. Really cool. We did some really cool things with that design, but it, Came about at a time when I had sort of reality was crashing in. I had been engaged in production pace that was just way too rapid, too many new models being produced too quickly. I couldn't sell everything fast enough to keep up with the production pace and I was running out of money. So when I got to the legends, I realized this has to pay for itself. I can't keep using today's sales to pay for tomorrow's production. Correct. If it's not feasible. Right. I can't make it. I can't rationalize production unless we sell enough in pre-order to actually pay for itself. I don't want to have to borrow money tomorrow to pay for what I did today. Right. So we actually killed that product. And, you know, it was modestly successful. It wasn't our best. It wasn't our best selling model, but on its own, it was probably not that much worse than anything that had come before it. But everything that had come before it I was a little bit too optimistic and I had, I had to be more ruthless in my decision-making at this point. And I killed it. And when we pulled the plug on that product, that was the first one I'd ever killed. The first product I'd ever come out with that never took, got off the ground. And like I said, because of my personality and the way I engage online, I had a number of haters and trolls out there.
0: Of course. Oh, they
1: threw a parade. It was, yeah. this is it. Yeah, he's yeah. done. He's out of business. Yep. He's it's always gone. easy
0: to boo from the stands, but not ding. keep in mind yeah, that I he's mean, the guy, right? Yeah. You should I mean, it was unbelievable for weeks.
1: It was like, ding dong, the witch is dead. Wow. And, you know, again, the, the, the silver lining there is that seeing that really fired me up and reminded me why I was doing this in the first place. The whole spirit of Luan Huey, you can knock me down, but you'll never kill me. I was determined to come back even better. And the next model just flew off the shelves. We sold about 200 pieces in 20 minutes when we opened up sales in the next model. Wow. Yeah. So, and that just, you know, that type of thing, when you can do that over and over again, when you can survive a, a setback and you can come back even stronger than, than ever, and you can really kind of blow people's minds it shuts the haters up. It it kind of silences the critics. There's, they're still out there. It's got to be tough
0: though, from a mental health perspective, let's say to be putting up with that when, when you're in the thick of it, right. When you, when you've kind of pseudo failed, I mean, you know, as, as Edison said, I haven't failed a thousand times. I've just found a thousand times that don't work essentially. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, this, there's
1: a couple sort of things that, you know, it's unpacked there. Um, A lot of my peers, they'll say things like, I don't, like hanging around on the forums because the forums are brutal. Those guys right. are, are savages on there. And I'm just like, well, yep. those are your customers. You have to be able to talk to your customer. If you're afraid to talk to your customer, maybe you don't belong in this business. Um, but at the same time, I try to explain to the guys on the forums that are constantly suggesting things that I don't want to do or asking why I don't do things that they want me to do or, or, or you know, criticizing what I'm doing. I say, look, you know, imagine you're a top chef in a restaurant. And not only are you, really good at what you do and you're trying to make everybody out in the restaurant happy, but you're letting people come in and actually ask you questions while you're doing it or criticizing it right. while you're doing it. And you're trying to make adjustments <laughs> on the fly and yeah. you're getting criticized. If every so often right. you tell somebody to get the hell out of my kitchen, right? Like it's, you, I basically do a lot of my work with a spotlight on me, right? A lot of transparency. I've I've been I've given people an unprecedented level of access behind the scenes into my business, which has brought with it a lot of rewards. A lot of the success of the business comes from that set, that level of transparency mm-hmm. that it brings people in, it sucks them in, it makes them feel connected, like the stakeholders in the brand. But the downside is, people feel empowered to second guess every decision, play Monday morning quarterback, question yeah, every decision. Yeah. And after seven years, I mean, I've heard it all. I've heard it all a dozen times. And sometimes it just gets like, again, with this question, <laughs> I was actually just looking at this this morning. It was a, um, so we've recently had a uh, discussion about one component, the clasp on the, on the buckle. And I saw somebody say something and it sounded familiar to me. And I just searched this ongoing discussion thread on the forum. And sure enough, we had almost this exact conversation exactly a year ago with the same people involved. (laughs) And I'm like, I thought we handled this a year ago. Why is it coming back up again now? Because somebody couldn't help but bring it up. And then everybody who said everything that they said a year ago is now saying it it again. Again, yeah. Because nobody remembers who said what a year ago. But I'm like, you guys, we had this exact conversation. Everybody who's saying everything now said the exact same thing a year ago.
0: Amazing. Yeah. First, last, best, and worst experiences working with microbrands. Well, so that the genesis
1: of Microbrand university, it came from, well, first off the Jane and Chip, the other two of the three amigos, they started their businesses after mine. And we kind of sort of knew each other from all being online. Cause you know, we're geographically all over the world. So yeah. we knew each other from this one place that we had in common, the forums. So my first experience, you know, sort of mentoring, if you want to use that word, others was Chip and Sujane and me saying to them, you're starting your own brand. I like the cut of your jib. Let me help. I'll introduce you to my vendors or I'll give you some pointers or, you know, we can bounce ideas off each other, what have you. Uh, And that then grew into people just contacting me out of nowhere saying, I'm thinking about starting a brand or I've started a brand. and It's not working out very well. Can I get your advice? And you know, like you and I have talked about before, you know, while we, while this, the, the recording wasn't happening. Um, over and over again, I get people asking me for my advice and mm-hmm. very often I was mm-hmm. giving it to them for free, but very often people would say like, I just want to ask you one thing or two things or three things. And it's like, it's like peeling back the layers of an onion. There's never just one or two of or course. three things. Everybody right. thinks they just right. have one small problem yeah. to solve. And really what they do is they need a complete redo on their business. Um, the product is terrible. The pricing is, I mean, there's all that <laughs> stuff. And how do you do that? in two questions or less, five minutes or less, one paragraph email, a Facebook exchange. You can't do that. And very often it got frustrating for me, not just because I just didn't have enough time to explain why there was so much more to it than they thought, but also very often when I tried, I would then turn around and see those guys riding off and doing exactly the opposite of what I suggested they do or exactly. just ignoring the advice. So the 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 microbrand university came about because I got tired of being asked for my advice, giving my advice, and watching people ignore my advice and then they would fail. It was frustrating. Yeah. So I thought, well, I get all these people asking me for advice. And I think there's a need for some best practices to be taught and Advocated for within the industry. That's where the collaboration with my competitors come in. I think if we all get on the same page and start doing a lot of the things the same, the right way, we'll change the business even more quickly for the better, and we'll all improve our businesses yeah, as a result. It's good for everyone, right? It's good for everybody. The customers appreciate it. The, you know, the vendors appreciate it. If we can all adopt the same best practices that we learned through hard-won experience, that—that that was the other point behind Microbrand University. So I thought if I start charging for my advice. That'll separate the guys who are serious from those who aren't. And maybe the guys who pay for it will feel a sense of accountability. So, you know, that was the first sort of the genesis of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. MicroBrand University. And then the most recent one, the last one. Well, this is hard to talk about. So um, we had our most recent MicroBrand University session was in October. Um, this is now mid-December. Rusty, my 3D guy, was there in our last MicroBrand University with his wife, Dee. They've been planning on starting their own brand with my full support um, not directly competitive with me and my brand uh, for most of this year, we've been working on this behind scenes. Mm -hmm. And, um, for a variety of reasons, we, you know, sort of the clock ran out on us with We knew there were some pending cost increases coming next year. Uh, we knew they were going to maybe happen early or late this year. And we were, we, we didn't have enough, Rusty works a full-time job. I mean, this is typical micro brand challenges. Yeah. I do this full-time. He works a full-time job. Plus he supports my business. Right. He didn't have enough time to work on his own business before the time the clock ran out and we had to launch a little bit too early in terms of we, I would have liked it if we had more time to do more promotion, but we did, I think, an outstanding job with the time we had, but it was a little bit too late in terms of the cost increases that were coming. We, you know, it's a difficult thing to put a price or you figure out a cost on a physical product before it actually exists or before it's a design is even finalized. We did our best to get good cost estimates from our vendors leading up, you know, throughout the process. Again, yeah. this goes back to product development. We got cost estimates up front, but the final cost was much higher than we were expecting. And we actually had to launch the business and start taking sales before we actually knew what the product was going to cost to make. We were rushing. Wow. So- Literally the same day we opened sales, we got surprised, blindsided with a major cost increase that very night. So within 24 hours, we had to shut it down. So he wow. basically stopped taking sales, gave everybody back their money. He's in the pro. It was literally this week. So wow. it's still it's still kind of an open wound for yeah. us. And, and yeah, yeah. you know, it's his business, but he's my guy. He's my friend. And I invested a lot of time and energy into the success of his business. I put my businesses, social media reach and reputation behind his. So, and it's, you know, it's unfortunate and I I don't think any reasonable person would look at it as a personal failure for me, but I kind of took it that way. Like I was coaching and mentoring this guy. I was putting so much energy into the, you know, investing in his success and it didn't work. And, you know, again, it was, we got blindsided by a surprise cost increase. There's a lot of things happening in industry. We ran out of time. That's not my fault, but it is what it is. It's yeah. still, it's still uh, it's a, you know, an aborted one. project. And it's poetic in some ways because the very first time Rusty and I worked together was the legends, which was the model that I pulled the plug on. Right. So here we are again, coming full circle. The first model that Rusty is doing under his own brand, we had to pull the plug on. So that was Ugh. the, that was the most recent experience and That's it wasn't tough. For, yeah, it might also be the worst experience. We'll, we'll see.
0: Yeah. How about the best?
1: best experience at Michael brand university. Um, I mean, it's all great. We really, we found out as a coaching team that we really enjoy doing this. Um, you know, we kind of went in there very seriously thinking like, okay, it's sort of like a college situation Mm -hmm. where teachers, Mm -hmm. they're students, but there's a lot of camaraderie in there and it's, you know, you're basically getting up on stage and putting on a show in some ways. So, um, the four of us found out we all really enjoy it. We've bonded as a team. Um, and we've formed great friendships with the guys that have come through. That's great. Um, And it's, it's a joy to see these guys, you know, spread their wings and leave the nest and launch their businesses. Um, It's also sometimes frustrating because sometimes we get these guys too late or they don't have enough resources or enough time. And they're kind of too far down the road to feel like they can just stop and turn back. Right. Sometimes they don't always accept all of your advice. So, you know, you do, you do the best you can. Uh, So we're still kind of waiting for the, um, proof of concept mm-hmm. to be realized. We've done two of these microbrand universities just this year, one in this past spring, one, you know, just two months ago. And the guys from the first group are just, some of them haven't even launched yet. They're still in the the planning stages. You know, they're taking their time. Um, some of those guys have launched this past, you know, month or two and they're, you know, doing okay. Um, and then Rusty and one other guy are kind of launching right now mm-hmm. or Rusty did and then didn't. Um, so You know, it's going to take time to show the results of MicroBrand University, which is one of the reasons why we think if we can get the physical MicroBrand University, the, you know, online and make it an online course, we can then distribute it more widely. We'll get more iterations eventually, inevitably, you know, maybe it's 80, 20, 80% of the people still fail no matter what, but they've got a better shot at success because they went through the course, but 20%, if they succeed, if we have enough numbers, we're going to see a lot more successes. Right.
0: Yeah. Right. Well, thank you for sharing that. And would you say that was still the worst with Rusty or do you, do you have another worst? Uh, the worst
1: experience, um, no, I, are uh, the worst experience at micro, I mean, there, it's all been good. They're really, it's really difficult. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, we've only done two I and mean, there hasn't been a right. lot of time to do something, you know, terrible right. yet. Um, we had, um, no no, I I can't think of anything that was bad. I mean, that was probably the worst experience to come out of, I mean, just on a personal level. Yeah. You know, it, it, you know, Rusty didn't, he he actually, you know, he's going to be fine. You know, he lost a a very small amount of money. Um, We lost time, which in my book is money. But um, yeah, I mean, just because he is a a friend, he's been working with me for five years. He's helped me build my business. There is something fundamentally unjust. You know, the universe isn't fair sometimes, but to, to have a guy who's contributed so much to my success, who well, I then had the opportunity to pay back and, and contribute something to his success. And for then for him to, you know, try something and it not work.
0: Yeah. I mean, personally, it's kind of, it's painful, but you yeah. dust yourself off, you give it yeah. another go. And that's kind of a part of the growth, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, we're
1: already talking about, okay, you know, this is again, Lou and we're not done yet. We're, we're, we're all within a 24 hour period. We were back to, okay, how are we going to relaunch this? Are we going to rejigger the product? Are we going to wait and see how the dust settles? you know, see how this environment sort of stabilizes because it's real shaky right now. Are we going to do something completely different? But he hasn't completely given up on the idea yet. And the first day I was just beside myself, but within 24 hours i was like yeah absolutely let's get back on the horse that's awesome yeah
0: awesome well thanks again chris this was incredible how can people reach out to you if they want more advice or if they want to check out your watches or microbrand you you got a lot of stuff going on so give us give us the rundown how sure. can people contact well, you Well, please buy a watch uh so the
1: website <laughs> is n as in nancy t is in tom h as in harry watches.com uh that's my nth watch website you can find us on instagram at nthwatch um facebook page whatever um you google us you'll find us um microbrand university is microbrandu.com so you can check us out there and we still haven't yet announced the exact dates or location for the next uh session mm-hmm. which we're thinking about doing in dublin ireland awesome yeah that would be fun how um, many people do you usually enroll Per Uh, session. Well, we typically have room for 10 or 12. We think that, you know, 15 might be a little bit pushing it in terms of, can we give each person enough time and, 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 you know, interaction. But, um, so far we've had like five or six in each session, which is fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we're, of course, we're working on getting that online. So if you just go to MicroBrand University, there's a blog there. There's some, you know, I think the blog content is pretty good in terms yeah. of giving people food for thought if they're in startup mode, even if they're past startup, but thinking about your business as something that you're trying to grow. The blog on MicroBrand University is great. Um, and, it talk, and, it, and it touches on some of the concepts we we work on in MicroBrand University, but if you just want to know more about MicroBrand University itself, the front page, the landing page is good for that. Um, and then that, you know, that, that's pretty much it. I don't really have it right now. I don't have anything else going on, which I don't need. Because <laughs> You've got enough.
0: There's way too much. I, I have too much going on right now. Uh, that's awesome. All right. Well, thanks again, Chris. This was fantastic.
1: Thank you.